I'm Sanjit Sethi, and this is On Topic, Conversations on Cultural Leadership. Gulgun Kaim is an interdisciplinary theater artist, writer, and teacher. She also serves as Director of Arts, Culture, and the Creative Economy for the City of Minneapolis. I spoke with her on May 28th. Like last week's episode with Roger and Deanna Cummings, this conversation took place three days after George Floyd was killed and hours before the third precinct in the city of Minneapolis was burned to the ground. And I think the culture in government is very much supports this concept that we know the answers. And what the, a lot of the work that I've been doing working within government is to help them understand that you don't have the answers and it's okay not to know the answers. My conversation with Gulgun is a conversation of processing, unpacking how our institutions respond during great moments of reckoning and understanding where culture and art fit within all of this. It's also a conversation that holds space with the exhaustion that comes from cultural work and specifically cultural leadership during times of trauma. So it seems to me, before we get started to talk about your own personal trajectory, as well as um, the work that you're doing uh, and the work that you envision and ideas around cultural leadership, um, that we really do have to hold a moment of space and, and address this specific moment in time uh, where we saw earlier this week the tragedy regarding the death of George Floyd. And I'm wondering if you've got specific thoughts about how a community goes about recovering and how organizations go about building trust uh, after such a horrific event. So um, it's very hard to answer that question because we're still very much in the moment of the violence that's uh, that happened to the to George, um, who was killed on 38th in Chicago. So certainly the, the, it's very hard to talk about recovery when you're still dealing with the, the moment. Um, on a personal level, the, uh, for me, um, I am still trying to process how to even be in a space uh, at the city, um, where, where obviously that's where the police force is. Uh, a department of the city. Um, I work with many city departments. I have not worked with the police directly for the very reason that I have reservations about that department. Um, but it does dominate um, not just city budgets, but it dominates community connection with the city. So the police are interacting with the community every single day. And um, so it's very hard for me right now to even envisage what healing may look like when we're still in the moment and to think about uh, healing, uh, especially since the history of policing in general in this country and um, its violence to communities of color, as well as um, the history specifically of this city. Uh, I've, sort of, I've been in this in this situation way too often in my eight years at the city. And, uh, I, you know, every, every single time it happens, I question, I question my role, whether it has any impact, whether I can contribute. So you've, you've caught me at a moment of vulnerability. I'm afraid I, I don't know what the answers are. I, and I won't pretend to know. Um, I do work quite closely with many community members that are right now being impacted by, um, by the uh, aftermath of this situation, both on the businesses on Lake Street, um, artists who are in the vicinity of 38th and Chicago that I know very well, um, community organizations, council members. 
so it's very it's very hard for me to respond in any kind of cognitive way I just feel it's very emotional I'm very emotional and quite raw about it at the moment so I'm sorry I can't be more articulate than that I think as we're living through this moment um, it's hard for us to go ahead and um, plan a path ahead um, when we see so much of our community um, feel a similar type of pain that we're feeling um, um, and it seems particularly difficult at this moment where uh, this is under the broader scepter um, of living in a pandemic and seeing the incredible degree of economic devastation um, uh, that 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 this illness has brought about. Um, and that, and I don't know. Um, if you can share with me thoughts that you have about um, coping strategies that you have um, in someone that's really um, in the front lines of dealing with um, people feeling the incredible pressure uh, regarding the pandemic, um, of how are you able to cope on a regular basis uh, with this onslaught of, of bad news? And then on top of that, thinking about this current tragedy that we're in. Well, um, to, I have to say that the I, it, it's no it's no mystery. But on on a again on a personal level, the way I've coped is to be in relationship with community. Um, so uh, with colleagues um, working uh, in other cities who are dealing with the same thing, we've increased uh, our calls just to be supportive to each other, and also locally. Um, with uh, folks on the front line who are working in the streets, um, department um, heads who are collaborators with my division, who are um, working um, to support the community in, in, in some way and ask us to also support them. So really, um, it, it's actually some, a conversation I had recently with um, a colleague in neighborhood and community relations at times of great stress and emergency like this, really what happens is you fall back on the relationships and the trust you've built over time. And that is exactly what's happening for me too. It, I'm, I'm falling back on those relationships locally and nationally that I've had and that we, I can lean on and trust because at times like this, there's really no uh, opportunity to build trust. You know, you're all you're all in a, you're, you know, physically you're in a moment of stress. You're in a, either in a fight or flight scenario and the way you deal with it is to process with people you trust. So that's, um, that's what we've been doing in certainly coming together, gathering, uh, also trying to problem solve as everyone else is trying to do that without knowing what the future looks like, but trying to work together to, um, to bring minds from different um, perspectives and different experiences together so that we can figure out how can we get through this? How can we support each other through this? And in some cases, collaborating with our resources. Um, so finding new partnerships and new ways to collaborate. It's been both hopeful and stressful at the same time. Uh, hopeful because uh, in times of emergency, you suddenly realize that you have more allies than you thought you did. And um, you can work together and some of the barriers that may have been there in the past uh, dissolve because the, the crisis is so acute. So um, those, those, some of those barriers were actually false in some ways. 
Um, so it allows you to do things that you may not have been able to do before. And that's been amazing. Um, but at the same time, some of the systemic barriers that have always existed reveal themselves. They may have already been there and you may have already been seeing them, but now everyone sees them. And so um, finding allies who can work with you on those more is systemic structural issues are where there's, where there's been a lot of um, hope for me at least and, uh, and uh, uh, found that the, the work we've been doing has been meaningful. You know, I, I really appreciate you talking about reaching out and, um, and and trying to be more intentional about ensuring that you've you've got that connectivity um, that you think can help support you. And, and it does make me think about um, a recurrent topic that comes up in my conversations with uh, individuals that I really consider to be cultural leaders like yourself, uh, which is around that idea of mentorship. Uh, and I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts on how the idea of mentorship has evolved for you. Uh, were there certain seminal moments in your own personal trajectory um, that you can remember um, that you think uh, mentorship made the difference? Um, and in and, and how do you think, like I mentioned before, how do you think that that idea or concept or philosophy of mentorship is evolving? I think mentorship is really important, um, not just um, through uh, having been a mentor to folks, but also um, knowing the, the data around mentorship. I mean, at the end of the day, mentorship is relationship, right? It's building relationship uh, over time with someone who you can go to, who can help support you through the arc of your career. And, um, uh, so, so I think it's a very, very important conversation. I think it's a very important, um, uh, element in helping people access resources and systems that may be opaque to them. So mentorship as a function is very, very important on a personal level. It's been, uh, mentorship hasn't really, uh, I just want to reflect on this, hasn't really been there for me. Um, because, uh, I don't know why, I mean, to be honest, I've, I've sought mentors and, uh, to, and I haven't really found mentors in the way that I would wish them to be. So, um, uh, certainly as I was being educated, uh, looking for mentors in education was one of the first places I, I went to in my training as a theater artist and finding them lacking, especially for women. And in the context that I was trained, I'm, I wasn't just a woman. I was a woman from an immigrant community who had a weird name and, you know, didn't speak English very well until I grew older. But uh, so mentorship was very hard to find within my community who didn't support what I was interested in. And then also outside of my community in the majority culture, there weren't many, many mentors for young Turkish girls in London to help you seek out the structures and the the uh, access to theater, let alone directing. So um, I didn't find those. Um, I, I, I want to say that there were some folks who I, I uh, sought definitely in academia as I, as I went into graduate school and got more training. But on the whole, I didn't find the type of mentor I was looking for. So someone who could help me in my career, someone who could advise me on, on, um, on what to do next. 
uh, I really didn't find it. I, I ended up both in my community and I guess, um, you know, further on in, in practicing theater in this country that I ended up uh, being an anomaly or not being the right gender for, or, you know, coming from the wrong background or wanting to do the wrong type, the, the wrong type of work, um, just didn't find them. So I, I'm, I'm sorry to be negative, <laughs> but that made me even more interested in being a mentor for others. So uh, as I began to access the system, uh, working really hard to find ways that I could support people in structures that I, I could influence and, and um, uh, provide access points for. Well, you know, you, I think oftentimes there's that misnomer. Um, mentors are there to, they're the elderly sage that gives advice to the, the neophyte, right? That um, in reality, I think it's oftentimes a, a value exchange about two different individuals from life experiences and two different perspectives. Um, uh, and, and I, you know, and so in the idea of starting to create mentorship relationships that you didn't have uh, or you wished you had um, is the same way I think so many of us are are in education, period. Um, how do you provide the, the pedagogical experiences that you didn't have and you wished you had? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I also think the other part of mentorship is someone who understands what you're going through outside of the professional environment. So... Um, having access to people who are teaching, who know what that experience is. So as someone who came up in a Muslim context, you know, I, I come from a culture that's Muslim, the barriers that I had to face to uh, or had to overcome in order to even practice theater are different than somebody for whom theater practice is a given and an, and an assumption within that culture. So talking to a mentor that can understand those Unfortunately, in my situation, most of my teachers were white men. <laughs> so, so I had no ability to connect with someone that understood uh, on that level. Um, so if we think about mentorship as, a, as sort of a, um, um, you know, um, like you said, um, sort of the apprentice and the master, you know, a master craftsman or a master artist working with someone who's just beginning their career. It's not just about the technique or the, or the intellectual pursuit. It's about the life challenges that are being faced by the, by the student or by someone who's, you know, beginning to practice. Those are as relevant as the, as the technique and our structures and systems, at least when I was training, were just not there. So, you, I, you know, you, you had to do double labor in order to understand how to fit into a theater structure that wasn't just hostile to women directors, but was hostile to anyone who had a different type of voice uh, that wanted to bring a different type of conversation to the theater community. In, you know, I'd love to know more about that trajectory for you um, <clears throat> of moving from overseas, uh, coming from uh, Turkey, um, uh, and how did you start to engage with theater as a practice? So let me back up a little bit. I'm not actually from Turkey. <laughs> I'm from an island. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm Turkish. Of a, So I'm from, I, from an island called Cyprus, which has a minority community that is Turkish, that was a colony of Britain, of England. Um, and uh, my family were refugees of a war. And so we ended up in London 
because we had to, that was the only way we could survive a civil war um, post-British um, <clears throat> colonization. So uh, Britain left uh, Cyprus in the 1950s, but left us with uh, communal uh, conflict. And um, that is still actually continuing to this day. There's a demilitarized zone that separates the two uh, communities, Turkish and Greek. Um, so my context was, first of all, having been born in Cyprus and then uh, at the age of five with my family fleeing to live in London in the diaspora. So there was a large uh, Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriot community that had fled the violence. Um, and, um, and there was waves of violence that continued all the way to 1974 when the partition, an illegal partition was um, happened between Turkey who invaded the island uh, to separate the two communities. Um, and, and arguably, I, I, again, I don't support that action. I think that um, what Turkey did was not just partition, but take advantage of the situation. But that said, um, I, uh, back to your question. So, yes, I grew up in London um, in an immigrant community. And so that's very much part of, um, as I said, my trajectory, but also in a Muslim culture that where theater and the idea of a, a, a young woman, especially <laughs> doing theater in a con, you know, was just not, not okay. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was not only not okay, but there were no examples that I could find around me of young Turkish, let alone Muslim women who were performing on stage, performing on film. My parents used to think of theater as they think of television when they heard when I was younger that I wanted to be an artist, they, they interpreted the word in Turkish as artiste, which is somebody who goes on stage. And I remember very clearly being chastised by my mother that I was never to think of that because she thought of it as, a, as not an okay thing for her, for her daughter to do, that this young Muslim girls don't do that. And so that was the context um, when I mentioned that it wasn't supported by my community. It was to the extent where my parents stopped talking to me when I did performances in London on the fringe stage. Um, so that, you know, the, the barriers, as I'm saying, are not just about learning your trade and getting into the business, but it's also about someone from a culture where this isn't sanctioned working in this business. Um, so those are the sort of layers that I'm referring to. That makes a lot of sense. Um, in, uh, and how um, are your parents still alive? My mother is still alive. My father died. Is is no not longer with us. Yeah. And and how does your mother? T um, what does she think about your trajectory now? Where you are? <laughs> well, she doesn't quite understand it. So <laughs> she uh, she's okay with the idea that I have a full time job, <laughs> and she is she is understands the concept of working in a, uh, a government institution. So she's very much for the idea of being a sort of a, in, in a government position. I think for her, she has no idea what I do and why I do it. Um, so, so there has been less resistance since I, um, you know, became the director of arts and culture <laughs> for the city of Minneapolis, but also since, um, my work took me into more administrative roles and less uh, theater roles, 
I don't share with my mother the work I do in my homeland. So I still practice in Cyprus working on peace issues. And um, I don't share that because she doesn't support uh, the polit- my politics on that. And so it's very much done uh, outside of my family. Um, there's very few members of my family I can tell uh, the work that I'm doing on, in Cyprus as an artist or who would understand because the tensions on the island are still very, very much on the surface. Um, so uh, historically what she had done was just stop talking to me. Um, and then um, once I told her I wanted to study um, theatre, really um, she just was not interested. Uh, luckily in the UK when I was going to school, education was free, so I didn't need my parents' money to study. <laughs> and as long as I could do it, uh, as long as I had good grades, I could go ahead and do it on my own steam. Um, but that was for her... Um, she was not supportive. And my father was a much more open person. And, uh, but, but I just want to say the context for them to understand what I was interested in was very, they just didn't have any context for it. The only context was television and they disapproved in general. So it took, a, it took quite a bit of defiance on my part to do theatre and to be a theatre artist. Uh, I had my mother once come to see me on stage <laughs> and she said that was the first and the last time she'd want to ever do that. <laughs> so, <Wow>. so <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I happened to be playing a part of being a pregnant woman, <laughs> so she was very unhappy <laughs> about that. Quite the modeling. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and you have to also understand, I was supposed to have an arranged marriage my um, mother did have an arranged marriage and the plans were that I was going to have an arranged marriage too. So the whole situation was very tense. You know, I, I wonder that hearing you talk about this sounds so similar to, to, you know, um, my parents, both immigrants to this country, um, um, you know, uh, um, so kind of growing up in the old country, if you will, uh, also part of a diasporic existence. Um, uh, my mom, Indian, but born in Johannesburg, South Africa. You know, the it's a, kind of similar, this idea of um, um, connections with a homeland, but also disconnections with a homeland. Um, but I, I wonder, uh, and I don't know if you felt this, that um, that ability of having to explain, having to rationalize, um, having to go through the struggles of trying to um, say, this is a creative pathway. It's not a business and commerce pathway. It's not medicine. It's not something that's maybe more palatable. That, that through that process, do you think it's given you some kind of keen insight or an edge um, in terms of your ability to try to um, understand where um, um, disparate voices are coming from? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, yes. I mean, within the context of this country, um, I, I totally see um, communities, especially immigrant communities, um, I, I totally relate to their struggles. Uh, I have had uh, very deep conversations with members of the Somali community where I just feel like they're telling my story. They're talking about things that I went through. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, like you point out, it's not my situation may feel very unique to me, but it's not unique at all. It's, it's the type of uh, environment that anyone who's an immigrant, especially coming from a very different culture, is faced. 
you know, coming to a majority community that, you know, just doesn't understand the context in which you're trying to get an education, let alone get training and work in a, um, an industry. Um, so yes, for the parents, as well as for the, for those who are wanting to be artists, it's really, it's really a traumatic conversation. Um, so that's, that I think, yeah, I totally get that. I, I understand it. I try to, um, not be, a <laughs> uh, too, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I get it. I sympathize. I empathize with it. I understand the, the emotional feelings, uh, behind it. I understand the, uh, the reason why, why, um, young artists, uh, immigrant artists may wish to work in, uh, creative forms that their parents may have no context for. And I also understand how the gulf of um, cultural gulf that's built up between the two. So one of the conditions of going into a, a profession like theater where my parents have no context to understand it is that they're not part of my life. You know, as I, as I become a professional in that, they can't share with me either the successes or the failures. They can't support me by, um, you know, sending, you know, giving advice or any, anything else really. So it becomes very much a lonely experience. You become separate from your family. Um, I think if, if I was to become a lawyer or a doctor or something else, they would have a better context to understand it because it exists in the culture that I'm from. I'm not saying that theater doesn't exist in Turkish context, but it's not, it's definitely a recent, um, historically, it's, it's a more recent practice. Um, puppetry um, was really the way in which traditional Turkish culture expressed itself in a theatrical form. And then dance was another way, but that was not sanctioned for women to do in public spaces. So the um, Muslim women were not supposed to dance in front of um, men. <laughs> so, so being on stage itself is itself a, a, a problematic um, practice. Um, so, you know, I just want to sort of point that out. I totally understand it. I get it. I try to, um, I'm empathetic to it. I, I understand that there are different contexts in different communities, but the overall experience I think is similar. Yeah. I mean, I think it, um, it seems like that, um, we're talking about in many ways, I, I dialogues are regarding communication and how, Empathy plays a, tr a really significant role in that type of communication, um, and I'm in some ways I'm kind of reflecting on that by saying that, thinking that oh, since the COVID pandemic has really been, um, you know, kind of something that's been beset upon us really since mid March, I've been really impressed um, by the work that you and your team have been doing on regular communications. Um, with the broader community about um, cultural resources that are available, but also to try to keep the broader cultural ecosystem engaged. And by that, uh, what I appreciate about a lot of the work that you're doing, it's not about necessarily about the articulation of these of larger institutions like the WAC or MIA. Um, it's really about um, the kind of earnest, invested culture that's coming um, in an almost interstitial fashion from the community around us. And, and again, I want, I guess I wanted to know, um, how's that communication going from your end? How difficult is it to, 
um, to stay positive, to go ahead and um, and lean into a community that's in pain, but also to provide them um, with a with a guide star or a, a, a point of reference as they start to move forward. Well, it, again, it's uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, it is difficult to remain positive because I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm ha- I happen to be in this position where I can see forward and I can see behind me at the same time, meaning I'm talking to elected officials, trying to get uh, resources out to a community that need access to those resources and, some, and it's sometimes translating for them what that means. So I'm looking forward and making recommendations and policy sh- and recommending policy shifts and changes I'm waiting for decisions to be made. At the same time, I'm experiencing um, on a very direct level through my friends and my community uh, stress, uh, experiencing loss of income, loss of at every single level, loss of livelihood. Um, and at the same time, I'm sitting at tables um, talking to other um, folks who are involved in the local and national system that are working to mobilize um, resources. So advocacy at the federal level has been a lot of the work that I've been doing in collaboration with other cities, other large cities, because we believe that by coming together, we can make our voices heard better to get resources out to community. So uh, communication has been very, very important, but I also find that there's a tendency for the same voices to be heard, that um, because of relationships, as I mentioned, there's a natural inclination for folks to lean on their existing relationships. Um, so I've been try- I've been very mindful about not just doing that. Um, that that's that's where security lies for everyone is is people I know and I trust I'm going to work with, but also know that um, what you're doing is reinforcing a structure. Uh, that hasn't been serving people <laughs> by doing that. So making new relationships over time and talking to those people as well, including them in the conversation and opening yourself up to the vulnerability of not knowing and communicating is where I've tried to be. Uh, I'm not sure I've been very successful at it, but that's been where I've tried to be. Um, so uh, you were referring to communications coming out of my office I also am aware of, uh, become aware of resources that are flowing in lots of different directions and trying to pivot towards resources that can be accessible to the creative community, whether they know it or not. And uh, that's been where I think I can provide some things that uh, others can't. So um, dealing with facts right now, um, there are some funds available during covid through the federal government, through the National Endowment for the Arts. There's some funds available through the State Arts Board. But we also know because of business shutdowns, there's a significant amount of of income loss uh, to government itself. So through um, property taxes, as well as through um, sales taxes. And because our system uh, of funding the arts in this state is very reliant on sales tax, it will mean that those resources will also be constricted, not now, but coming out of the pandemic. So my 
pivot has been to look at non-arts resources. How can we get those resources into the hands of arts organizations and individuals uh, and businesses so that they can continue to survive? And there's, interestingly enough, a lot of potential and opportunity there. And I happen to sit in a, in a position where, you know, these resources are only available to government um, and they're, they're bigger resources. So that's been what I've been trying to do is, is point to those, work with my um, partners inside the city to say we need to be at the table for planning of those resources. Those are, those are still in action right now. We haven't come up with concretes. It's mostly um, making recommendations and, and advocating for policy positions. There's, you've said so many things that I want to try to unpack, and so I'm I'm trying to 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 go with kind of what's first on my mind. But um, you talked about vulnerability, and you talked about that in relationship to um, a communication ethos. Um, and I I'm glad you brought that up because I think oftentimes uh, we don't really see vulnerability as a as a as a strong leadership quality. Uh, oftentimes we see vulnerability is a sign of weakness. Uh, more and more, I've been thinking about how vulnerability is uh, one of the most important qualities to have, especially when you're communicating with communities that feel that they've been disenfranchised or that they've, um, they've suffered some type of significant inequity. And so I guess I'm wondering, um, have you been shaping thoughts about about vulnerability as um, as a leadership quality, and if so, um, what insights are you willing to share? Oh, sure. I think it's a really important leadership quality. I think um, that we have this myth of this strong leader, and I don't know where that comes from. That somehow the leader should have uh, all the answers, and I think the reality is, how can we have all the answers? The reality is, we don't have the answers. And the, uh, a person in a position, let's say, who uh, has access to a lot of resources or, you know, needs to understand that they don't have all the answers. So that first step of vulnerability, knowing that you are, you cannot do that and stating that is the first step towards understanding that you need to be collaborative in, pro in solving problems. So we often project in these positions a sense of we know how to do this and we're going we're gonna to do this. But that is actually not a very strong position to be in because how can you know every circumstance that's going to happen around you? I think acknowledging that you don't know is the first uh, step towards being more adaptive and more um, responsive to the conditions that you find yourself in. Because we all want to construct plans and processes and projects that are predictable, right, that lead us to an outcome that we've said, here's the outcome we want, and here's the plan, and this is how we're going to get there. Um, and we know that that meets reality, <laughs> which is real life. And in reality, all kinds of things can happen around you. So if you're unable to be vulnerable, and be open and be um, uh, responding to the conditions around you, I don't think you're able to deal with the reality of what people experience, are experiencing. And, I've, and that has been, I've, I've learned that the hard way. I've learned that by doing projects where I acted in the way I'm supposed to act, which is know what the outcome is and show people the plan forward and expect everyone to behave 
the way I expect them to behave and learn to my cost that, oh my God, that was a stupid idea. Um, and when I have stopped, listened and understood what people are telling me in the community around their conditions, their actual conditions, whereas my perceived understanding of their conditions was incorrect and listened and taken in and worked with community um, that's been where we've become stronger together. We've, um, we've learned and we've been responsive. So that's been the way I choose to quote unquote lead is to understand that I am, I'm limited, that um, we don't know the answers, but together we can, we can um, come up with solutions and that conditions around us will constantly be changing. So constantly checking in with the community around what is going on is the way forward in, in my mind. So those are my sort of hard learned lessons, I guess, is the best way to, to state it. And to your point that government likes to appear with the answers because that's, unfortunately, the government system is structured in a way where and and I think the culture in government is very much supports this concept that we know the answers and what the, a lot of the work that I've been doing working within government is to help them understand that you don't have the answers and it's okay not to know the answers and it's okay to say you don't know the answers and to work with community to build what the answers to your situation are together that 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 collaborative uh, process is the way we will move forward together as opposed to government moving forward this way and community for moving forward in another way. You know, I wonder if part of this is about um, embracing the asymmetrical nature of the world that doesn't always show up on a profit and loss statement or, um, uh, or a neat Venn diagram uh, um, or a strategic plan. Oh, absolutely. And of course, it comes from my theater background, too. So I do devised improvised work. And improvisation relies on listening very intently, being in, present in the moment with your partner. And as a director, I am my my role is to help guide those improvisers on stage. So um, helping to guide a, a, a piece that comes together uh, is really the training I have. And it, I've, I've learned that the more I rely on my training that comes from theater, the better I can actually do the job that I'm tasked to do. Uh, there isn't much in government that I've taken uh, that can help me do the job I need to do, to be honest. It's interesting that, that artistic practice has given me the tools I need. It's that critical problem solving. Um, it, it's critical problem solving, but it's also adaptiveness. It's also meaning, you know, don't don't just set it. So as a director, I, obviously, uh, you're trained to create a product at the end of the day, right? Within a certain time frame and a structure. But you know that uh, you can lay out the best plans and, you know, an actor will not show up or a crisis will happen or maybe an, another opportunity will present itself and you move towards that because that's the best solution in reality as opposed to the one you invented in your head. I don't know of many directors that come to a rehearsal room saying, telling their actors you're going to move 10 steps in this direction and five steps in this direction and this is what the piece will be because I invented it in my, you know, on, on, on my computer before I showed up. That's not what they do at all. They're working with the people in front of them and they're dealing with who these people are and what they have to offer. And they're creating something together as a community. 
So um, that is the training I've lent on to say, this is the people I have. These are the tools I have. These are the materials I have. This is a community I'm in. How can we work together to come up with a solution to this problem, knowing that there's going to be unexpected opportunities as well as problems that arise during the path, you know, during the process. I, um, it makes me also start to think more broadly about this moment of time we are in now with COVID-19 and living through a pandemic. Uh, I'm wondering if there are specific things that you want to see change uh, more dramatically. And I'd say this, I'm talking to you as citizen, not necessarily as representing the city per se, uh, um, speaking of kind of acting and roles that you have to sometimes, you know, go into, but are there, are there things that you would like to see that would be vastly and dramatically different within a cultural landscape when we're on the other side of the pandemic? I would really like to see the way we resource the arts different. So I'm, I'm saying that both as a citizen, as, as somebody in my position, I, I, find the way arts and culture uh, actually there hasn't been much conversation in the media or in you know in other structures about the pain and loss within the arts community that is currently being felt um, or necessarily much emphasis put on why that loss is in, is important for us to pay attention to there's been a lot of discussion about restaurants. Again, artists also get jobs in restaurants. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of conversation about small businesses. Yes, the arts are also small businesses, but there hasn't been a focus on what are we losing when we lose our, our opportunity and our people uh, in this pandemic. So not just people who are dying, but also people who are losing their livelihoods, who are having, being forced to go into other industries in order to make a living. What are we losing? And, uh, and that is a big concern to me. And, and I think what, what in, especially in this country, the structure that has supported this kind of disconnect between everyday life. Um, so the arts are funded on this separate pathway, which is mostly around a pathway that assumes that we are entertainers and that we're decorators as opposed to being part of how work gets done. Um, because of that, um, we are now in a situation of, uh, of deficit. So as I mentioned earlier, without sales tax, there is not going to be the government-funded resources that come through the State Arts Board available. Uh, that money is going to be reduced. We've also seen a pattern of nonprofits, not arts nonprofits not receiving resources from foundations where, because the perception is that there are more important issues at hand, like people's your homes and rent, rent issues and uh, food issues. But I want to argue that, wait, the people who are in the arts are also dealing with the same situation of rent and food, <laughs> that, that arts need to be considered as part of our, our basic needs as human beings. And that is, unfortunately, what I'm seeing is, is that it's, the conversation isn't happening and it's certainly not happening at the level of, of alertness that I have to it. And I can't get folks to pay attention to it, which is even more distressing. Um, so 
what I'd like to see changed is for us to find a, a way to make sure that arts are part of our everyday life. We've been doing that in a, in a, at a, you know, in a way in the city through the work that I've been doing, but I'd like to see that every, in every place. And I think that's been an aspiration we've had in the community, but more so now it needs to be a fundamental shift whereby artists are paid as much as other folks are paid, other professionals are paid, but also involved in projects that are meaningful and part of our everyday community needs, not just decorating or entertaining, but in other ways. And, and we can talk more about that, but that's where I'm at. Um, and the funding resources uh, mustn't just be through arts and culture grants. It, it seems like you're you're also kind of arguing for a completely reestablished model as to how we value cultural labor itself. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so do you see that as the the potential faint silver lining in terms of what we have the opportunity to possibly rebuild um, or, or make anew um, on the other side of this crisis? I hope so. I hope it's a silver lining. It's hard to tell right now because we're again in the middle of something that is still rolling out. We're still experiencing the waves of the pandemic, the waves of infection. Um, we're still, you know, it's very hard to see um, on the other end when you're in the middle of the forest. Um, but it could be. It very well could be. I think for me, uh, it's unclear yet. Um, what There are two options it could go. One is that we revert back to business as usual after this. And, uh, and we, we are is still in a, um, the, art, the arts and culture gets relegated to a entertainment and decorating um, task in community. And I'm not trying to belittle that because I, you know, there are, it's fine for folks to want to bring beauty into people's lives and want to, um, want to, uh, you know, get your mind off things. That is really important. I think actually that's, that's something that has been helping people get through the pandemic. But at the same time, the breadth of what arts can bring to a community in terms of problem solving, in terms of community resilience, in terms of addressing trauma, and, and all those other things that arts and culture can do is not paid attention to enough in this culture, at least, and is not, and it's also not, uh, there aren't enough structures and systems supporting that to happen, at least in this culture. Um, and so it's not part of our everyday needs. That's what I'm trying to get at. So a, a radical sort of perspective shift is what we need and then a, a funding shift a way that we can find resources for it again i'm referring back to the work we're doing in the city which is one by one department after another we're educating people in those departments what arts and culture can do for them and once folks learn that um, through practice once they learn what that can look like a, a sort of a light bulb goes off and all of a sudden they say, I, I don't know how I could have done it without the collaboration of an artist or a designer um, because they now know what the opportunity looks like. But it's like, that's the where we're at right now is we have to educate and we have to work in collaboration with people to show them because we've had such a successful disconnect. Um, we've been running parallel, uh, I'd say, uh, 
sectors for such a long time. It makes me start to reflect on um, on your thoughts, maybe on what cultural leadership may mean to you, um, especially as you talk about it through um, the spheres of your own personal trajectory in terms of um, how you grew up, how you studied, but also thinking about it, um, thinking about it now. Uh, and I just wanted to to hear from you when you hear the idea of the concept of cultural leadership. What comes to mind? Well, I well, it's such a it's such a complicated question, and I'm I'm trying my best not to give it too long an answer, and to um, um, and to think about it. Um, I think from a personal level, uh, cultural leadership is a practice. Um, an, an adaptive practice, a, a practice of intentional listening and acting. Um, I think it's also one in which um, uh, bringing arts and culture to the table at a more systemic level to help address the issues that we're contending with in, the, in this community. And of course, the part of the issues that we're dealing with is the dehumanization of many of our systems of community members. So back to the original conversation we were having, um, what could arts and culture do in a situation um, with police violence? Um, That's actually a really important question that we should be, we should deal with. I'm afraid to deal with it, but we should be dealing with. Um, Because it's what I saw um, in that interaction where George was, uh, Floyd was killed, was a individual who dehumanized the person on the ground. That that person was ignored, their pleas were ignored, they were a thing, not a human being, and that was the result. And so cultural leadership needs to be as much about understanding what the word culture means and where it comes from and reinserting it back into these systems that have done have very successfully dehumanized people, both the people working in it and the community members. And uh, also, um, you know, if you're in a position or you're, 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 you have the privilege of working in a, in a container where you can make a difference, working towards that difference, being clear-eyed about it and saying, this is where I need to be rather than doing the easy thing. I hope I haven't rambled on too much about it, but those are just my first thoughts on it. No, I think that's really great. And I think it, what uh, I'm struck by is... Um, that cultural work is hard. And I think that that's something that we, we all feel like we can know and agree. Um, but being able to articulate um, what leadership means through, um, through culture, it seems to me that involves a, an embrace of, of failure. Um, it involves um, a, a greater degree of empathy than you may see in, in other leadership fields. Um, and, and at least that's some of the that's some of the pieces I'm gleaning from what you're saying. I would also argue it's about behavior. So one of the issues that we deal with in, in our work in the city is emphasizing to folks that policy is behavior and behavior is policy, and that um, rules, yes, policy are also rules, but those rules govern how we behave. And so so cultural change is needed, not just rules change. And changing culture is very, very hard because that's 
that's not just a system, that's a whole person's life, you know, where they come from, who they are, all that kind of stuff. But that's what's needed in institutions such as the city. Um, that Those need to shift. And also within the arts and culture community, that we have a culture and a certain expectancy of where arts and culture belongs and where it doesn't belong, what it can do and what it can't do, our expectations of how we earn a living within the um, uh, you know within creative practice and that needs to change too because you know culture is the environment in which we all swim we kind of don't see it sometimes but become a, becoming aware of it is very very important for us to then say how does it need to change um, so behavior is a really important part of culture um, not just the um, behavior at the collective level as well as at the personal level and somebody who's in a position that where they can contribute to that change is where leadership comes in, right? So um, in the city, showing where um, showing up when there is a dehumanization of a staff person, let alone a community, showing up when there's a process that is transactional and not not uh, taking into account the needs of a community or understanding the trauma a community has already. Have gone through and walking into a situation and saying, here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to pretend the past hasn't happened. All of that stuff is, is where leaders need to address issues that uh, have been historically not addressed. Um, so behavior is really, really important, both at every level, both at the individual, as well as at the, at the, um, uh, also, you know, elected level. It's, the frontline city worker, all the way to a council member and the mayor. Do you find yourself sometimes um, feeling torn between your role as as an official, in your role as an official capacity representing the city of Minneapolis uh, versus some things that sometimes you would like to react to or you would like to say or you would like to respond to in a specific way? Every single day yes that's a big yes um we talk very much in the city um those of us who are working uh, um, towards racial equity in the city very much that we would step into these shoes that uh, we didn't know were there before we walk into a job at the city and all the history that comes with those shoes and being taken to account for that history I don't think many people who take a job at the city are aware of that until they're in front of a community who's angry at you because of something that happened that you may not have been part of, but now you are because you're in that, in that position. It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult to hold both of those things to be true, both that, that um, you're a community member to reacting to something as well as now in the institution that has caused the violence um, it's very difficult. That said, there are rules that we uh, within the city where we can and cannot say things. I mean, I don't think folks are aware um, that that communications sends out an email that says you may not say this, this, and this because it's now become a uh, a legal situation, for example. And so, um, workplace culture and workplace rules take over. And I would argue that would be the same in your position in any other institution that anyone works in that the workplace rules 
uh, overcome your ability to speak for yourself, let alone for the for the organization. I certainly uh, am not authorized to speak about certain things, and there are some things I can speak for. But as a private citizen, I have um, certainly have my own private feelings and thoughts and, and questions that every time uh, challenge me to show up at my job every day. So um, I don't know anyone who, in the city who doesn't go through those uh, feelings and thoughts. And we talk a lot uh, among city workers about how challenging that is. Um, one other thing to mention, though, is that there is also this reality, this actual reality that we are or should be acknowledging that the community is the city, the city is the community. And what I mean by that is the folks who who work inside the city go back to their homes out in the community. So that is actually a truth that we should all be acknowledging. As some of my colleagues show up, um, take off their city uniforms or whatever they're doing, and they walk onto the front lines of protest. Um, so that's a reality that we don't often uh, do not often acknowledge. And what I ask, the questions that I ask my staff and certainly uh, other staff is what happens when you work, walk through those doors? What happens to you in an institution? Um, can you, where is your free speech and where isn't your free speech? You know, where, where can you speak? Um, and that's where I think we all struggle is, uh, is trying to know where the boundaries lie um, and where we can speak and where we can't. I'm reminded a little bit of um, text from Michelle Foucault, um, who uh, gave a series of lectures at, in Berkeley, um, uh, which were then bundled and published by Text called Fearless Speech, where he talks about this, um, this idea of not free speech, but how one speaks truth to power. Um, what are some of the confines and parameters of speaking truth to power? Uh, it seems like uh, whether we're talking about a culture that adopts the wearing of face masks now or um, what cultural imperatives to support financially and which ones to not support financially um, or how we're dealing with um, this uh, brutal uh, killing of a defenseless person of color, um, it seems to me dialogues regarding having platforms for fearless speech, whether you're in government or outside of government, are more important now than ever. Absolutely. And, and however, I want to also point, as I, as I said earlier, the institution is really good at defending itself. So there are rules and procedures in place for when um, emergencies like this happen. And, and those rules are very quick to come down and very quick to concentrate power. Um, and so the folks you see uh, speaking right now are the ones authorized to speak. But then there are many people who aren't authorized to say things officially about situations such as the one we're experiencing. And um, yeah, and that, and I, but that's, again, I, I, not just a symptom of the city government, that's a symptom of any institution, uh, any business, any corporation that anyone works in. Where are the parameters of speech? And then whether the institution is willing to listen to um, dissent. 
um, whether the institution is willing to uphold that as as true as much as the official line or the official talking point. Um, I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Um, we, as I said, we all have our personal perspectives on what we're going through. It's how we accommodate unpopular perspectives and dissent and whether they are uh, centered in our work as much as what the popular perspective is. And that is an issue of equity, of racial equity especially, as well in any workplace that, um, you know, I would argue, especially in this state, um, which has, uh, you know, I believe it's about 63 or 68% white uh, European origins, <laughs> population of European origin. And that is, you know, what about the voices of difference? What about the voices of dissent? Those folks who have had a different experience of living in this culture than the more popular um, uh, one. How are you centering their perspectives and get, allowing them to speak? I couldn't think of a better point to end this conversation for now. Um, I've just appreciated hearing your broad ranging thoughts um, and and reflect on uh, the incredible work that you're doing now uh, and the perspective that you're bringing. So, so thank you very much for this time. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity for a conversation with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Topic. To find out more about all of my guests this season, head to mcad.edu forward slash on topic, where you can find profiles and links of our guests and more information about this remarkable series.